imagination is a powerful thing. Yeah. And it can convince us that things are happening that aren't happening. It can provide us with all kinds of sensory data that exists nowhere except inside our own brains. But because we already have experience of these things, guess what? Our brains remember a lot more than we give them credit for. Your brain is creating a buffer for your grief with all of these things that you're perceiving. That's all it is, is your brain protecting you from the worst of the feels. Are you knowingly keeping yourself in a certain headspace because that's where you believe this other person exists? Because that's another thing that can keep you stuck literally for the rest of your life. I also discovered that a lot of mental health professionals agree that religion can be a buffer when it comes to the effects of grief. And my question there is, yeah, but at what cost? What is the real benefit of using one delusion to counteract another? Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. dead people, talk to them, hear them? Are you convinced that someone who's passed is somehow still with you? Well, apparently you're not alone. In fact, you're in far better company than I ever thought. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we're talking about bereavement hallucinations, the causes, the effects, and why it's important to learn how to navigate the grief and move on. As promised, I've looked at both sides of this argument, and we will be having what I think is a balanced and reasoned conversation about it in just a few. But first, an accidental moment of reason, a pastor channels the spirit of Veruca Salt, and the sweet, juicy love of Jesus. It's Christians behaving badly, bye-bye Bible, and more edition. <laughs> what have you got for us this week, Shell? Well, in whoopsie-daisy news... A school district in Texas, while choosing books to remove from their school classrooms, has somehow banned all versions of the Bible, at least temporarily. Let's hope that it becomes permanent. That would be funny. Last October, conservative parents in the Keller Independent School District demanded that certain books be censored and kept away from students' view, as they had themes that were deemed too mature. 33 books have been challenged by parents and community members, including a graphic novel adaptation of Anne Frank's diary, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, and The Bible, All Versions. In the case of The Bible, an unnamed parent raised the concern. A reason was not specified. Suspicious. Very suspicious. The district formed a special committee to review everything on the list, and over the course of months, they removed some books from circulation while others remained in place. The adaptation of Anne Frank's diary? That one remained in place. The Morrison book stayed as well. So did all the Bibles. As they should, there's no reason to shield kids from any of them. Yeah, you know what? I think that the Bible is a dangerous book on a good day. Right. But I'm not going to go the route of Fahrenheit 451 or the yeah. Nazis and say, okay, well, now we just need to take away people's freedom of choice and not even allow them the opportunity to see this. Because even from the perspective of someone like me who knows how dangerous it is, right. I also understand the concept of know thine enemy. Yeah. You know, most atheists know the Bible better than most Christians. So, yeah, they do. And it's not that we love the idea of sitting there and reading this, this vile Bronze Age tome. 
It's that we understand that if we're going to have a leg to stand on in a debate, we have to understand what these people believe. And even from just a purely intellectual standpoint, even the Bible, I think that it's important that we let this book be out there and let people make their own judgments about it after actually reading it. Not hearing about it from a pulpit, actually reading it. I think it's very important. Yeah, and also a lot of Western thought has developed from the Bible and uses it as a reference. So it's like a lot of things are referenced from sayings in the Bible. But then this happened. According to an email that apparently went out to all principals this morning from Jennifer Price, the executive director for curriculum and instructions, all challenged books must be pulled from the library and classrooms by the end of today, even the ones that previously passed the committee's review. For how long or for what reason? No one knows, but the bottom line is, at least temporarily, a school board in Texas has banned the Bible. What were we talking about a few weeks ago where everything is just doom and gloom? Yeah. This I just find to be so fucking comical. It is comical. Students in this county cannot take it out of the school library, and teachers cannot reference it for any school curriculum or for any academic reason. Yeah, so much for prayer in Texas schools. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, here we go. Pastor Veruca Salt. Let's uh, yes. let's take a look at this idiocy right now. Yeah. Carlton Funderburg, the pastor of Church at the Well in Kansas City, Missouri, told his congregation in a now viral sermon that he was disgusted with them because they weren't giving him enough cash to let him buy everything he wanted, including a luxury watch. Oh, poor baby. These people never quite understand that when they put something on the internet, the internet can then take that thing and make it go viral, and then someone will be embarrassed. In this case, it's the pastor. I guess he was disappointed that he didn't make the Preachers and Sneakers Instagram page. Is there such a thing? Yes. Oh, for fuck's sake. They price out, like, prosperity gospel preachers wardrobe. Uh Uh-huh. And they are wearing stuff that is ridiculously expensive. Oh, yeah. $2,000 sneakers, $5,000 sweaters. It goes on. Well, I mean, when you've got enough mindless sheep who are sending you all that money, it has to go somewhere. So why not a $5,000 sweater? You know, the whole thing with sneakers doesn't surprise me because sneakers have kind of been a status symbol for a very long time. Even when I was in junior high school, the Air Jordans were a thing. Oh, sure. And they've gotten more expensive over time. Mm -hmm. And they have become even bigger status symbols over time, too. Here's a quote from that sermon now. I'm not worth your McDonald's money. Nope. I'm not worth your Red Lobster money? Definitely not. I ain't worth your St. John Knits? Whatever they are. Y'all can't afford it? No, how? I ain't worth your Louis Vuitton? I ain't worth your Prada? I'm not worth your Gucci? You can buy a Movado watch in Sam's Club. And y'all know I asked for one last year. Here it is the whole way in August. I still ain't got it. Y'all ain't saying nothing. Let me kick down the door and talk to my cheap sons and daughters. I don't want to hear no more excuses about what you all can't afford. You can't afford it because you don't see the value here. You've got to be kidding. Why not just take some of the money that you've already grifted from them and just buy the fucking watch? Seriously, this is fucking embarrassing. I mean, not just for a pastor, but for any grown-ass adult. Oh, absolutely. How old was Veruca in that movie? 12? I mean... I think 10. I think they were all supposed to be 10 years old. Yeah, 
however, however old or young she was, this is the type of thing that you expect from someone that age. Not the person that is supposed to be your shepherd and your covering and the person that you're supposed to look to as the example for how to act and behave and, mm. and what it means to be a Christian. This is the message that he's sending people. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but at the same time, it's, it's just like, okay, you have been fleecing these people for God knows how long. And you can't figure out a way to just buy this fucking thing on your own. It has yeah. to be something that your congregation specifically gives you. Yeah, I it know. It has to be this. You've got the money. Buy the fucking watch and shut your fucking mouth. Seriously. Like, he's not even hiding the fact that he's a grifter. He doesn't want money to help the church or community, to take care of the poor or anything like that. He wants the money to line his own pockets and to keep him in the manner he'd like to be accustomed to. You know, there's a part of me that says at least there's that. Yeah. You know, Gene Scott was the same way. Oh, yeah. He used to get on and, and tell people precisely what he was going to spend the money on. Oh, and yeah. hardly any of it, on if any of it ever, had anything to do with spreading the gospel. It had everything to do with, with um, padding his lifestyle. And he was, he was unabashed bashed about it. He pulled no punches with his faithful when it came to asking for money. You knew what he was going to do with it yep. because he flat out told you. Mm -hmm. I don't know why this works, but it's obviously been working for decades because that was Gene Scott. That was like the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Okay. So if it was working for him then, of course it's going to work for an asshole like this now. I just, I can't wrap my brain around how or why. Yeah. I don't know. The pastor has responded, now that it's gone viral and he's embarrassed, with an apology that blamed people taking his words out of context. <laughs> Whatever, dude. Yeah. This, these are your words. What context yeah. are, are we talking about here? This what, is what you said. Yeah, what context? It's literally what you said. Would actually make this okay. Yeah. What mm -hmm. context? There, There but, is no context that would make it okay. Yeah, taking his word out of context. Yeah, right. One more here, and just what's the brief synopsis of this one? Beth Moore talked about her grapes, and they caused wrath. Okay, so yes. let's hear more about that. Blasphemy. The Baptists keep using that word. I do not think it means what they think it means. Oh, I'm certain it doesn't. Beth Moore is a Christian evangelist who preaches mainly to women. Unlike a lot of other evangelists with bigger followings, she is highly critical of Donald Trump and also the Southern Baptists' embrace of the right-wing agenda. As a result of the rampant racism, sexism, and sexual abuse, Moore left the Southern Baptist Convention last year in a well-publicized breakup. So suffice it to say, they don't like her, and she doesn't like them. They should, you know, just steer clear of each other. But you know... That never works. It, yeah, it usually never works because there's a tension in drama. Yeah. And they know it. And they like putting that in front of people. At least they like putting it in front of their own. Because this is one of those things where the general public is just not really going to give a shit. Yeah. But in the context of this organization and this individual, there's an audience. And both sides get that. Yeah. Beth Moore made an innocent little tweet the other day showing a picture of the grapes she's growing in her garden. The tweet read, I'm growing grapes for reals. It's like a miracle in 50 jillion degree weather. If Jesus is trying to get me to have a crush on him, it's working. That's so fucking creepy. 
I know, weird flex, but okay. We did an episode on the whole falling in love with Jesus thing. Oh, yeah. It's so fucking creepy, that whole concept. And every single time I hear anything like this, it gives me the douche chills. (laughs) Like, big time. Yeah. But seriously, that's where the story should have ended. But, you know, Christians. Yeah. I know Christians. Unfortunately, Mm. I do. A bunch of insane Southern Baptists treated her little jokey tweet like it was an act of blasphemy. Here's a quote from Hemet Mehta's article on Only Sky. Moore's name began trending on Twitter. Relevant, a Christian publication, summarized the grape kerfuffle this way. This is awful, said one person. I am really holding my tongue right now. Really holding. I hope you repent and grow up. Jesus Christ is not your boyfriend or your homeboy, tweeted another. He is your Lord, your Savior, your Creator, your Sustainer, your King, and your God. Beth Moore doesn't have a clue who the true Jesus of the Bible even is. Read the book of Colossians. Goodness. We could go on. Toxic, blasphemer, abominable. All of these and many more epithets were hurled at Moore for the use of the word crush. Mm -hmm. The same people who talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, refer to church as the bride of Christ, and who have song after song about their infatuation with their Savior, can't handle someone joking about having a crush on Jesus. You see, that's the thing. It was a joke. There are actually things about this person that just from this little snippet, I kind of like. Yeah. Because she seems to be more out on the fringes with the things that she believes, especially when it comes to politics. Yeah. And anyone who wants to stand up against the Southern Baptist Convention, as far as I'm concerned, can't be all bad. Yeah. But I don't think that these people quite understand. A lot of them go to church on Sundays and sing songs like, I keep falling in love with him over and over and over and over again. I know. It gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Oh, what a love between my Lord and I. How many times did we sing that song in chapel for fuck's sake? So many. So many So many. And if you want more examples, we did do an entire episode on this. But the other thing that kept running through my head was that song by Delirious. And the wonder of it all is that I'm living just to fall more in love with you. They don't seem to have problems with this. But a little thing like this, all of a sudden it's going to trend on Twitter. Do you people even listen to the words that come out of your own mouths on Sunday mornings? No, I doubt it. Come on. Moore responded to this with another jokey tweet about not getting any grape jelly from me for Christmas. <laughs> That's great. This was clearly too much for a Southern Baptist pastor named Josh Boise, the founder of the G3 Conference. Yesterday morning, he wrote that someone in his church gifted him with grape jelly. So take that, Beth. Moore responded in jest, saying that it wouldn't be nearly as good as hers before urging him in more Christianese to lighten up. To which Boise, a very normal dude, responded by denouncing her blasphemy. He used that word about the goddamn grape tweet. Mm-hmm. Racism? Not a problem. Anti-LGBTQ hate? He welcomes it. Destroying democracy? Yes, please. Sexual abuse? What sexual abuse? But Beth Moore jokingly saying she's crushing on Jesus after seeing her grapes grow? Blasphemy. The state of theological debate in Southern Baptist circles must be really, really dull. Woman says something that men don't agree with? 
May as well declare her a blasphemer. It'll save time later. True that. And that was precisely what I was thinking. It's like, this hasn't got anywhere near as much to do with what was said as it does with who said it. Right. Because she's already someone who has put herself in the crosshairs. Yeah. So, of course, when something like this happens, idiots like this are just going to fire back. Yeah. That's the way that it goes. And especially when it's a bunch of pasty white guys Mm. against a woman who has some kind of radical ideas as far as they're concerned. Of course, this is the type of thing that's going to happen because, I mean, it's just misogyny 101. Yeah. And I can't think of a single thing that the average evangelical male is better at than misogyny. Yeah, they're really good at it. And with that, we just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash unboundpodcastnetwork. $5 is all it takes to, uh, to get you started. And for that, you get the satisfaction of knowing that you are playing an integral role in more people getting and staying unbound. Help us do this better. We can really use your support right now. And if you are just too strapped to deal with the whole money thing, well, we get that too. So help us out in these ways that I think in certain ways are even bigger. Your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, all of the things that help podcasts grow, share our content on social media where it's relevant and tell people that we're out here because that is the most important thing that you can do for us. Like I've said before, I don't listen to a single podcast that I wasn't told about. (laughs) I didn't discover any of these shows. Someone told me about every single podcast that I listen to. So that tells me that it's an important thing for us to do to get this message spread to as wide an audience as possible, to get it in front of as many people who need to hear it as possible. You need to be vocal and you need to tell people that we're out here. And you can do it in all the ways that I just mentioned. And you can do it in a very significant way by at least considering helping us out financially. Once again, patreon.com slash unbound podcast network is where you're going to go to make your donation. And again, we thank you in advance for simply considering helping us in this way. So next week is a road test week. I'm going to be stepping away from the mic and uh, just taking care of business. Two weeks from now, I'm just calling this one TBA. Yeah. I have two weeks to figure out where we're going next here. And honestly, my brain's been going in so many different directions in the last couple of weeks with certain situations that have cropped up, one of which we're going to be talking about later. I just, I haven't had the brain space to figure out where I want to go next. What's probably going to happen is as we're talking tonight, I'm going to figure out where we're going to go next. (laughs) Because there are other things that relate to the main topic. I had uh, talked a couple of weeks ago about the things that that keep you from enjoying life because religion. You know, Mm. I, I feel like that's a good topic. I still feel like it's a little bit too nebulous. But maybe we'll run with that. Maybe we'll just run with that and see where it goes because I already have a bunch of examples of this running through my head. Mm. It's just a matter of putting it together in a way that makes sense. So again, to be announced two weeks from now is going to be, we're just going to call it a surprise episode. Just come back and see what we have to say. The next movie that I meant to promo last week, but fortunately I didn't, we went long last week. I remember you were talking about your, your uh, Christians behaving badly segment. It's like, this seems like it's going to be going long this week. I said, that's fine. It's a short movie. We're going to be done with this pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Two hours and 14 minutes of raw audio later, we were finally wrapping it up at like after 11 o'clock at night. But I do think that we got a good episode out of it. So the next movie, now that I feel like I have 30 seconds to talk about it, 
We're going to be doing the 1980 movie Resurrection with Ellen Burstyn and Sam Shepard. Yeah. Now, I'm sure that there are people in the audience who have heard of this movie. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a difficult find. It is right now available to watch on the Roku channel. And there's also a bootleg of it out there on YouTube. I'm not going to provide the link to that because it is a copyright issue. But if you just type in Resurrection 1980, you can get there too. It's a really, really interesting movie that I'm not going to give the plot away Mm. because it's out there on the fringes of what we talk about, but there's a definite tie-in. And I like the way that this whole thing is presented where it's not Jesus from beginning to end. And we're going to get to that probably sometime mid-September. And I'm also trying to work out what October is going to look like because mm. October is always an interesting month around here. Yeah. It's a fun month. It's a fun we month. We kind of delve into some of the more creeptastic stuff that goes on out there. Yeah. And I've got the cogs turning for what we want to do. October is my favorite month for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But I think that the creative outlet that I get with this is one of the main things that I enjoy about it. So for a third year in a row, we're going to be bringing you four weeks of creeptastic content that I think everyone's really going to enjoy. But before I ramble on too much more about that, let's just get right into our discussion on bereavement hallucinations. So according to author Matthew Ratcliffe, the term bereavement hallucination refers to a perceptual or perception-like experience of someone who has died, usually a partner, family member, or close friend. Such experiences are sometimes described in terms of specific sensory modalities. One might see, hear, or feel the touch of the deceased. Now, up to three quarters of bereaved people report some form of communication with a deceased loved one. 75%. I thought that was a ridiculously high number, but Mm -hmm. apparently it's true. I saw similar numbers in a lot of the sources that I checked for this. And, you know, when I saw that, I'm like, okay... Confirmation bias, anyone? That can't possibly be that high. But I mean, all kinds of sources corroborate that the numbers are that high. I had no idea. I didn't think that it was a small number, but I didn't think it was that many. Especially when you consider how religion is trending in this country right now. You would think that those numbers would be lower. Right. But religion and spirituality are two different things. Mm -hmm. And this concept, it's kind of touched by both. Right. And it can be a purely secular thing, too, but usually religion or spiritual belief is involved with it. I find Psychology Today's take on this to be very interesting. Some of it I agree with and some of it not so much. But one of the things that they say in this article is that such experiences are part of the personal growth that many bereaved people experience. And I'm thinking, this is kind of toxic. Why on earth would you look at it as a means of personal growth? Well, The more I delved into the research on this, the more apparent it became that this is true. To an extent, it's true. And we'll get to the reasons why in just a little bit. Around a fifth of the people who report having some form of communication with someone who has passed say that they have evidence. They they have evidential reasons for believing that this happened. And the crazy part is that in some of these instances, the information that they receive or convey or both actually turn out to be true. Mm. Now, does that mean that there's some kind of metaphysical reason for it? Well, keep listening. A recent survey conducted by one poll 
that's all they call themselves, is one poll, finds 42% of people polled actually believe the dead can still contact us from the other side. Moreover, nearly two in three people, that's 63%, claim that they've seen signals or signs from a dead loved one. That is a fuck lot of people. Yeah. Of course, had I been asked this only about six or seven years ago, I would probably also have been adding to those numbers. Yeah. Because I did a lot of things like ghost investigations. Yeah. I was convinced that certain people had been talking to me during my wicked days. I was I was convinced that I'd been communing with certain people. Right. And I'll get into that a little bit more in a couple of minutes too. But you know, when I think about the fact that I could count myself in that number not terribly long ago, maybe it shouldn't be that surprising how high the numbers are. Right. So here are some of the most common signs that people believe to indicate that a spirit is nearby. 27% say that they sensed a presence in the room or have multiple experiences of sensing a presence in the room with them. 23% say that their pets start behaving strangely. And 22% say that they can actually smell a particular scent and not be able to pinpoint the source. Right. I have experienced all of these things. Mm -hmm. And there are definite natural reasons for all of them. Of course. 25% of the people surveyed believe the spirit of a lost loved one is still playing a major role in their life. They say a friendly spirit guides them through many things in life, like helping them find jobs, watching over them when they're sick, and keeping them safe when they travel. These are among the most popular beliefs in this particular category. 62% of adults who believe in life after death, now just bookmark that phrase, say they'd had contact with a spirit. Another 39% say they believe in paranormal activity because of the stories others have told them. Now, there's the operative there, though, isn't it? People who believe in life after death. Those of us who don't, don't typically experience these things. Now, do we? Mm. We really don't. And that's just the way that it is. I've heard it said this way about things like possession before right. too. It's like, how come you never see an atheist possessed by a demon? If they really wanted to demonstrate how real they are, then why wouldn't they come after us? Mm. It still wouldn't be quote unquote proof, but it would be way more in the realm of evidence right. than what we have right now. That's for sure. And here's another interesting statistic. Nearly half of the people who believe in ghosts believe a dead loved one has returned from the other side to contact them again. In fact, one in five who have experienced a spiritual presence say their ghostly loved one actually made physical contact with them, doing things like brushing past them or touching them. Another 17% say their dead relative made their presence felt by causing the lights to flicker while one in 10 have heard ghosts talking or crying out in a quiet house. Again, all things that I have experienced. Hmm. And there are natural reasons for all of them. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't believe that they can hear what a dead loved one is saying, 46% of all respondents say it's comforting to think that a lost loved one is still able to reach them after death. With that in mind, 52% say they regularly talk to their family members who are no longer with them. They talk to the family members. What do the family members have to say? That's the question. Yeah. More than half the survey, 55% of the people surveyed, believe that people we love never really leave our presence, whether we still see them or not. 
Now, I've had experiences yeah. in this arena. I think we've both had yeah. experiences in this arena. Mm-hmm. The first one for me was actually when my grandmother died. Now, this was in 2010, and it was the end of any affection that I had for Christianity at that point. I, yeah. I don't think that at that point I was really seriously identifying as a Christian. But I was still, for reasons unknown, I was still going to the Episcopal Church with you and just losing more and more of it every single week. And I was at a point when my grandmother died where I was thinking a lot more like an atheist than a theist at that point because it was stuck in my head that my grandmother was gone. There wasn't going to be this rosy reunion at some point. She was just gone. Mm-hmm. I couldn't feel her presence anymore. I saw her laying in that coffin and, you know, it just, the reality of it just overwhelmed me. Actually, I think it was when we were driving onto the property and I saw the hearse. Yeah. The reality of it just absolutely overwhelmed me. And then when we got inside and we saw her in there, it was almost more than I could bear. But the funny thing was that not long after I had a dream where I saw my grandmother and she was probably 40 years younger or even a little bit younger than that. I feel like this version of her was probably late 20s, early 30s. Right. And the way that she was dressed, it was just weird. And the colors were very weird. It was almost like one of those old time sepia or sepia or however you pronounce it. Those kinds of like brown and white photos. Yes. Everything was kind of in that sort of a hue. And I remember in my dream asking her, are you in heaven? And in the dream, she responded to me, I'm where I belong. So this was kind of a reflection of the way that I was thinking of things at that point. She neither confirmed nor denied that she was in heaven. But the dream was my brain's way of comforting me through a very stressful situation. And unfortunately, it also kind of steered me back into the realm of belief for a little while because I absolutely believed that I had talked to her Mm -hmm. and that I had seen her. And that followed me right through my wicked days. The funny thing is she never showed up again. Of the people that quote unquote showed up in ritual space and during meditations and all of that, she was not one of them. This was the last quote unquote communication that I had had with her. And it was just my brain trying to comfort me a little. And unfortunately it steered me back in the wrong direction for another six ish years. Yeah. I was also convinced for a while that I had had conversations with my father, literally not even in ritual space. We're talking just driving down the road and he would pop into my head. And I was convinced that I was talking to him. And then the most dramatic of these incidences was when I believed that I had contacted my best friend who died when we were 11. And my brain went so far as to age him to the point where we were both early 40s. It was creepy. It was almost, well, I want to say it was creepy because at at the time it was so exhilarating and exciting But to think about just how far my brain went with this now is a little creepy. Hmm. You know, I could have done without like 90% of it. I could have done without 100% of it if we're going to be real about it. But it's one of those experiences that I'm not entirely sorry that I had. Right. Because, you know, there's always been a part of me that's wondered what it would have been like if he survived. Would we have remained that close? Would we have been as much on the same page at 40 as we were when we were 11. And 
of course, my brain constructed a version of him that was all of those things. And it was very comforting. Yeah. Because of the people that I've lost, that one was the most difficult. I mean, it was 30 years between when I lost my grandfather and when I lost my grandmother. And right there, not even in the middle, only two years after I lost my grandfather, I lost Matthew. And that one was the most impactful death for me, even though I watched my grandfather die. Matthew was the most impactful death for me. And seeing him again in that context was very, very, very comforting. Our brains know what to do to steer the narrative in a way that's going to be comforting. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more in a couple of minutes later. The bottom line is that I've been there. Mm -hmm. Many, many people, myself included, have been there. But Does that make it real? You know, I was amazed that Psychology Today printed an article that paints this in a light of at least semi-validation. But the language of the article does speak volumes if you pay attention to what's being said. Here are just a few examples. This is from an article written, oddly enough, by a guy named Steve Taylor. (laughs) No, not the homophobic pro-life Christian musician and satirist we give too many nods to on this show. This one is a PhD. And I do think that he chose his words carefully enough so that those with ears to hear or eyes to read, I guess, would understand. Here are a few of the snippets with my commentary thrown in. In the aftermath of bereavement, it is not uncommon for people to undergo an intense form of post-traumatic growth. They may even change so radically that they feel as if they've become a different person, someone with a wider sense of perspective, a new sense of purpose and meaning, a sense of connection to nature, and deeper relationships. My response to that is that when death touches us at close range, it's natural, I think, to be confronted with our own mortality. So these things take on a sense of urgency. Everything in this list takes on more of a sense of urgency in our heads. We focus on them more. We assign greater value to things like our relationships and the things that we experience and so on. I think that it's just a normal progression of things. When we face death from that close range, it really starts making us think about ourselves and and our experience of life. The next thing that he has to say is that in some of the cases, an important element of the transformation is a sense that the bereaved person was still in contact with the friend or relative they lost. For example, a woman called Leanne had a close friend who was murdered while working as a nightclub bouncer. A few months later, Leanne was at home when, in her words, all of a sudden the room filled with this golden light. There was a sense of peace that was overwhelming. Then I saw Bruno in his human form. My eyes were closed, but he was standing there, surrounded by blue colors and light. He said to me, you keep asking for me to come back. Don't ask that. This is where I'm supposed to be. Ooh, you know, chills. That's that's exactly what my grandmother said in the dream. Okay, so let's zero in on what I believe to be the most important part of this. And that is the part where she says, my eyes were closed. He was standing there surrounded by blue colors and light. So apparently she thinks that she saw him, but her eyes were closed. What does that tell us? It tells us that this is something that her brain created, that it was her imagination that was just running with this thing because it was an interaction that she wanted to have with this person. Her brain basically created a construct of and based on what she remembered and on several popular elements to supernatural encounters and near-death experiences that a lot of people report on. There's really nothing unique about her 
description of this. A lot of other people have said a lot of the same things when it comes to situations like this. I think that she got her phenomena a little mixed up with this one, though, because the whole sense of peace and bright light are things that are usually typical elements to near-death experiences. Right. But her brain at this moment decided to apply those things to this situation. More stuff that she'd heard about before and that her brain had simply cataloged and was now pulling out because it was a convenient coping mechanism. That's really what it boiled down to. And there is a good bit of overlap between sources when it comes to the actual experiences people have. And you know, like I said, she wasn't saying anything out of the ordinary here. People have said all of these things. And here's the list of signs that people report that Taylor lists in his article. There are people who literally think they can see the deceased person. There are those who have a strong feeling that the deceased person is nearby, watching or helping. Then there's the whole sensory experience part of it. They can smell that person's perfume or just their normal scent. They're convinced that they've been touched. They're convinced that they've heard noises, sounds, maybe words, someone talking to them, and it's all attributed to this person who's passed. And then there's the sense that deceased friends and relatives are contacting them through animals or by symbolic means. Yeah, I know that a lot of people say that when cardinals visit that's like a communication from their loved one. Mm -hmm. It's usually cardinals. I think dragonflies are also another one. Okay. It's a bug. It's a bug. I mean, let's let's just call it what it is. It's a bug. It's a bird. It's whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of them out there. Oh, yeah. The odds of you seeing a cardinal at certain times of year are pretty high. <laughs> the odds of you having a dragonfly brush past your face at certain times of year is pretty high. Mm -hmm. People assign these meanings to things because right. that's what they want them to represent. Yeah. And that's what it boils down to. It doesn't represent anything other than the fact that nature made more dragonflies. <laughs> that's it. The next part of the article says that the simplest explanation would be that these experiences are wishful thinking, self-delusion, or hallucinations. However, ugh, there it is, the dreaded however. However, some after-death communications are difficult to dismiss in this way since they involve deceased people passing on messages which were later found to be relevant or information that was later confirmed. In one study of 1,667 after-death communications, around a fifth of these communications were said to be evidential with three different types of evidence. So I'm reading that and I'm like... Around a fifth. So that means that four-fifths, or 80%, were easy to dismiss. So why not just say it? Why not just say it? That 80% of it is debunkable. It sounds like at least 80% is debunkable. So let's, with that in mind, take a look at the leading evidences. First, again from the article, first there were experiences in which a person sensed or saw, often in a dream, the death of a person and found out shortly afterward that they had died. Why an image of someone dying would jump into somebody's head? Well, there are all kinds of indicators for that too. You know, what you know about that person, what you know about their relationships, what the likelihood is that they're going to find themselves in harm's way. If this was a bouncer in a nightclub, that's not the safest of jobs no, in the first isn't. place. So I'm not a, a, a clinical therapist, psychologist, or anything like that. But from what I understand about the way that the human brain works, 
it would be easy in an instance like that to create a construct where your brain communicates the kind of danger that this person is in all the time when they work a job like that. And if it's someone that you know and care about, either consciously or unconsciously, you definitely are going to be worried about their safety knowing the kind of job that they do. So it doesn't seem to me like it would be that far out on the fringes for someone to have a dream of someone dying. But the timing and structure of that person dying was nothing but coincidence. Let's just make sure that we're 1,000% clear. It is nothing more than that. Our brains do weird things from time to time. Second, back to the article, some experiences provided evidence that was later confirmed. In one example that was offered to me, a grandmother had a vivid dream in which she was having tea with the other grandmother of her grandchildren who had died recently. The other grandmother warned her that their granddaughter was in danger from her violent boyfriend. Here are those details that matter again. After some trepidation, she spoke to her granddaughter. She admitted that her boyfriend had made death threats to her, and she split up with him shortly after. This, to me, is among the worst choices for an example that they could have put in this article. Most abuse victims give off signs, and these signs are especially apparent to the people who care about them. I'm willing to believe that this person didn't actively think anything was wrong before this, but I do think that she was receiving those signals on an unconscious or subconscious level. Things the brain picks up but doesn't think about actively until there's enough data to do something like generate a dream. There was definitely something. I can't prove it. I mean, this this is my opinion. I can't prove any of this. But when you know someone well... Anything remotely off-center is going to register eventually. And whether it's in the front of your mind or if your brain is just cataloging it until it has enough data to parse some kind of feeling or concern or anything together, once it has enough of that data, if you aren't actively thinking about it, then it makes perfect sense to me that your brain is going to construct a dream around it. So as soon as I saw those details, it's like, come on now. Come Mm -hmm. on. This This is someone who knows this person well, and if she's in any kind of distress, whether she's trying to let on about it or not, she's letting on. There are always signs. There are always signs. And even if they're subtle, they're there. And that person's brain picked up on these things, and it generated a dream that basically gave her the courage to speak up. I think that was what she was looking for, was some kind of avenue to bring this up. And then her brain just gave it to her. Mm -hmm. That is what it looks like to me. Thirdly, in some cases, the experiences happen to more than one person. And they give the example of a young woman and her fiancé who both saw a vision of her dead grandfather. And now, when you're dealing with two people, and they claim to have had the same basic experience... There are things that you can do to figure out whether or not they did. And it bothers me that there's nothing in here about these people being taken to separate spaces and being asked specific questions to see just how alike the experiences were. What was grandma wearing? What did she say? Are there parallels in the descriptions between the two of them? We don't know because we're not being told. And who knows if they ever took the research far enough to responsibly collect data that way. You know, it all depends on what the purpose was of doing the research, because unfortunately, it's very easy to taint data to make something look like you want it to look. That's why the scientific method 
exists yeah. because it has reputation built in. Whereas something like this, it could be purely opinion, but now they've got these quote unquote evidences that show, well, this thing actually happened. Okay, no, give me the details that I just described and then we'll talk. Okay, that's the way that I look at that. And then the article ends with what I consider to be some ridiculous speculation. It, it, it is only speculation. He's not trying to yeah. uh, tout any kind of an agenda here. But I still think it's a little ridiculous. And he talks about things like telepathy and other things that kind of delve into the realm of metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Okay, no. <laughs> Can we not with the pseudoscience in a Psychology Today article, please? I, you know, I'm amazed that they printed that part of it. I feel like they really could have done without that last bit. But that notwithstanding, I feel like there was a definite read between the lines message going on with this where he didn't want to offend by just saying this is all bullshit, but also wasn't about to say that this is de facto true or real either. So here's the real question. Why does any of this happen? I mean, to the people experiencing it, it's very real. So real, in fact, that even once some people let go of the notion of their loved ones still having places in their lives, they still hold on to those experiences as things that are beyond explanation. Some studies indicate that just like anything else, our brains have to learn how to grieve. At the beginning, bereavement hallucinations are the brain's way of dealing with the stress of loss. It manufactures sensory and cognitive information that is designed to make us feel like our loved one is still close. The comfort of that offsets some of the grief. But here's the problem. It's not healthy for the brain to keep this up forever. Most people see a diminishment of this kind of activity over time. I don't think you ever get over the loss of a child, spouse, or life partner, for example. I don't think that there's a a move-on aspect to that where you put them in your past and that's it. I don't think that there are very many people out there who can do that. So there's no moving on from it to the extent that you don't feel some emotional attachment. It's always going to be there. The trick is getting all the way through the grief stages and landing in a place called acceptance. Now, since I brought it up, blogger Mark Negley explains the grief stages this way on a site called greaterthanthat.org. He says the most well-known psychology-based model in the grief recovery world is the Kubler-Ross Five Stages of Grief. This model, introduced in the 1969 book On Death and Dying by noted Swiss-American psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, presents a concept that is linear in nature. The model states that a survivor progresses through five emotional stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Linear progression models like this represent the healing experience as a series of emotional response steps that we will go through when confronted with loss. The model essentially suggests you will first feel this, and then you will feel this, and finally you'll feel this. As you progress, you are supposed to process the emotion associated with that step, get past it, and address the next until you have successfully completed the progression and are finally healed. The problem is neither I nor any of the people I've interviewed or talked to have found the process to work like that. That's his words, not mine. Right. And here's the thing. Plenty of people don't experience or process grief like that, at least not in the static way that the model suggests and not always in the order that the model suggests. I mean, I know that I've felt every stage in the grief process. In certain situations, I know that I've gone through all of them, but not in every case. I think that when Matthew died, I was a little bit too young to really compartmentalize most of it. 
I went directly from denial to just depressed acceptance. I definitely glossed over most of them. Yeah. Because it, it was a little bit too much for an 11-year-old to process. Yeah. But this isn't a hard and fast description of what people go through when they grieve. But I think that a lot of people's grief at least touches a good number, if not all of these areas, a little bit. Fully processing the emotions in all of these things often involves the aid of a licensed therapist or other mental health professional. You see, if you want to progress through the stages of grief, it's it's a difficult thing to go through alone. But if you got somebody in your life who is telling you this is how you can expect your brain to process this, it kind of steers them in the direction of processing it that way. Yeah. And that's not always a bad thing. A lot of times you, you kind of have to dig a little bit deeper and find those emotions and figure out where you're at. And a lot of times you're going to figure out that you are at one of these stages and now you need to get past it. Are you going to go through all of them? Well, maybe, but maybe not. But here's where you are now and you do need a little bit of help getting through it. So that's where therapy comes in. There are plenty of people who, when they lose loved ones, turn to therapy for help. But here's the problem. The vast majority don't. This, I think, plays no small role in the huge number of people who experience bereavement hallucinations. And when you look at the grief stages, it's easy to see that it's possible, and in many cases likely, to get stuck. Okay, You can get stuck at one of these stages and stay there for a very long time. And here's the other part of it. Bereavement hallucinations can show up at most of the stages of grief. In the denial phase, when the survivor is aching for more time with the person they lost and refuses to let go of the notion that the person is somehow not really gone, it takes the form of, no, he's here. He's with me. I feel him. I've definitely had plenty of people come back with that, yeah. you know, just not wanting to let go. The denial aspect of it can be a really, really strong place to find yourself stuck. In the anger phase, when the survivor is feeling abandoned or angry at the person for dying, it turns into, don't you fucking leave me here alone. I need you. Answer me. And they stay in that place for a long time. And after the brain gets to a point where it can't handle the stress of that anymore, it gives in and lets them hear the person talk. Yeah. They get the answer that they want because now... Something has to be done to relieve the stress and your brain kicks in and says, okay, I guess we just need to do this. In bargaining, it could be, I just want one more chance to say some of the things I know I should have said before. Just let me make amends and then I can be at peace with all of this. And eventually, guess what? That person shows up and they make their amends. And that could be the thing that leads them out of that particular stage of things or maybe out of the grief process completely at that point. The depression stage could be where sensory hallucinations come into play because that desperate need for comfort and happiness. Our brains also know what kinds of things turn us on and calm mm -hmm. us down and all of that. So it can trick you into believing that you smell something or that you feel something or that you hear something. It's very, very possible. And it happens to a lot of people acceptance seems to be the ultimate equalizer. It's where you come to grips with the finality of the situation, compartmentalize the emotions, and figure out how to move past any notion that someone who has died has any way of interacting with you. But in every other stage, there's room for our brains to latch onto memories that fit in the mental places we find ourselves when we lost someone. But like I said, 
there are more than a few sources out there that paint all of this in a positive, albeit cautionary light. Some say it's a normal part of the bereavement process, but most of the sources that I found that said this also warn that eventually it's necessary to move on. If you get stuck in this headspace, it can start causing problems. Now let's talk about some of the psychological conditions that can arise from grief. Most mental health experts who have bothered to blog about this agree that bereavement hallucinations are not necessarily indicative of the presence of extreme mental health issues like psychosis, but they can be the result of several other causes. PTSD is a major player in this arena, and it's one of the disorders that play heavily into those defensive triggers that keep people from moving on. Loss of a child is one of the most common causes of PTSD tied to grief. Watching someone die is another. I know a thing or two about that one. Because like I said a minute ago, I watched my grandfather die and it was not pretty. Major depressive disorder is another leading condition that can be brought on by grief. It presents with extreme sadness or despair, only small or often undetectable fluctuations in mood and a loss of interest in life. In this scenario, the survivor basically disconnects from their emotions as a means of fleeing grief. They don't allow themselves to feel anything and subsequently wind up losing a large degree of their motivation. It makes it difficult to function at work, it can destroy relationships, and can even lead to drastic responses like suicide or prolonged mental illness of a number of descriptions. Prolonged grief can also present with conditions like anxiety, sleep disorders, suicidal thoughts and behaviors, and a variety of physical illnesses as well. Our mental health can have a direct impact on our physical health, and everything we go through prompts our brains to put up various defenses. There's a reason why so many people settle in with delusions about lost loved ones still being here. The truth and accepting it outright can upset the balance in the brain and make some very bad things happen. Namely, significant denial or disbelief about your loss, which causes you to not be completely in touch with reality anymore. Mm -hmm. You have the whole perceived loss of identity thing. Honestly, when I think about this one, when I saw that one, Mm. the very first thing that I thought of is, you know, there have been many, many times where I've wondered how I'm going to feel about me if I survive you. Right. It's, It's a difficult thing for me to think about. Because you've been part of this equation for so long that it's like, if that was ever gone, how would that change my perception of me? So it's a real thing. It's definitely the kind of thing Mm. that someone who loses someone should, well, not I don't want to say should, but definitely something that they worry about. And if they're worried about it when that person is still here, when they're confronted with it, it can be way worse. Yeah, I know that uh, after my mother died, it's like my brain was running in circles. Mm -hmm. It's like my mother was the one who knew me the longest, and she was the closest to me. I don't know who I am anymore. Yeah. That was a really tough one. It really didn't take place until after I had Liam, though. Yeah. Because I was insulated from the grief until he was born. Yeah. And then I had postpartum, Mm -hmm. and then that. Yeah. So it wasn't fun. Yeah, that's that's kind of the progression. Yeah. You know, it, it, it sucks that that happened at the time that it happened. Yeah. I would have loved for her to have met him at least once. I know. But, you know, that's that's life. It Unfortunately, is. that's just the way that it goes. Yeah. Um, there are people who try to consciously forget the deceased person. And all Oof. I can say is, you know, good luck with that. Mm. And why would you even want to? 
I know. You know, it's and having the memory of that person in a healthy way is actually a healthy thing. But just the whole letting go and trying to forget thing, I, you know, I'm sorry. You've been in my life longer than you weren't. So yeah. it would be an exercise in futility for me to try to forget you. And I would never, ever, 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 ever want to. Right. So, but there are people out there that use this as a defense mechanism because it becomes too difficult dealing with the emotions that are tied to that other person and the headspace that they find themselves stuck in. You've got the lingering anger, which of course is one of the grief stages that you can get stuck in. Change in personality. Oh yeah, a lot of people change drastically when they lose someone close. And a lot of people have difficulty returning to their normal social, academic, leisure, or professional routines. They report feeling emotionally numb and they lose their sense of direction and purpose. These are all very bad things that can happen when the truth just has its way. That's why people have to kind of finesse their way into it and why it's mostly beneficial to have help in the form of a good therapist. Yeah, It's very, very beneficial at that moment because it can help you avoid a lot of the things that are on that little list. But of course, that also begs the question, well, isn't it better then to just live with the delusion if confronting it and seeing it for what it is can lead to things like suicide and other bad things? Well, you know, that is where the whole concept of getting help comes in. But even the notion of resolving these thoughts and feelings for some people can be terrifying. People often avoid therapy because they fear that they will learn to let go. And they're not in a headspace where they want to let go. They can't see there being more peace in that than they perceive to have in holding on. And that is what keeps a lot of people from getting help and keeps them stuck, sometimes for their entire lives. So that right there is the clinical end of it. Now let's look at how spirituality exacerbates the issue. When you add things like God and metaphysics to the mix, it's a good recipe for getting stuck. As an evangelical, I was taught not to believe in ghosts, but I never got a straight answer from any kind of spiritual authority about whether or not a deceased loved one can actually influence us. The half answers I got ranged from, it's possible, to it's the Holy Spirit communicating with you in a way that you can understand. So the Holy Spirit is a liar. Got it. (laughs) Got it. Yeah. And that brings me to the two stories that got this particular ball rolling in and violently bouncing off the walls of my head over the last month or so. Yeah. So as many of our listeners, if you've been paying attention, know our relationship is in the realm of polyamory or ethical non-monogamy. And I haven't had a whole lot of luck in this arena, to be perfectly honest. You know, there's there have been moments where I've been glad that I've embarked on this journey, mm-hmm. but it has been an uphill battle. It yeah. really has. But at the same time, I've learned a lot about me and I continue to learn a lot about me through this process. But there are moments and instances where I feel like I should know better about mm-hmm. certain things, but my brain is still just far enough off on the side of letting my emotions have a say in certain things that it can still tend to get me in a little bit of trouble. Yeah. So in this particular instance, I just kind of logged on to OKC at one point, and there was a new like. I looked through this person's profile, and I saw that there were certain things that 
looked really, really good. And then there were certain things about spirituality that I figured, you know, this could be problematic. You see, that's my intellect telling me this could be problematic. And then my emotions start telling me, well, she saw your profile. She saw that you're an atheist and she swiped right anyway. So it's worth checking out. I still sat on it for like three weeks. Yeah. And when I finally decided to contact this person, let me tell you, it was exciting. For another three weeks or so, we had some great conversations. I had brought up in the midst of conversation multiple times, I used the phrase, I'm not a spiritual anything. That part of my life is done. I said it more than once. Yeah. And I felt like we had had some decent conversations about that. Nothing really in depth. But we definitely addressed it once or twice in a very muted sort of way. So fast forward about three weeks, and we decided we we're going to get together. We went to this wonderful outdoor concert with, with a Fleetwood Mac tribute band. They were, like, really, really awesome. It was an amazing night. I honestly thought that things were moving in a good direction. And then there was a little bit more talk about things like Reiki. And then we started talking about her son who died, who she's convinced is still part of her life. And, you know, I feel like at this point, at this stage in the game, I should have been more prepared for this. Mm. But when all of this started coming out, it's easier in text because you can backspace and you can really get your thoughts together in that kind of a conversation. But when you're standing there next to somebody or sitting there on their couch, it's different. It's much more difficult to put on the poker face or really collect your thoughts and say something that's going to make sense in that moment. So when she started talking about these things, my, well, when she brought up Reiki, I did tell her, you know, technically I'm still an RMT, Reiki master teacher. I went through all the stages with this and stopped short of saying anything else about it other than the fact that I'm not practicing it at this point and that it's not something that I would ever see myself going back to. Right. And that was kind of the end of that conversation. And then she brought up the stuff about the child who had died. And, you know, I was just at a point, you know, we, we, we had just had a really, really nice time at this concert. And it felt like a too heavy conversation to be having at that moment. And I didn't know precisely how to deal with it. So I kind of dealt with it with a little bit of uncomfortable silence. I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say about it. And it's like, it's going through my head. Well, she already knows that you don't think this way. She already knows that this is not something that you're just going to look at and say, oh, well, that's great. But we got past that part of the conversation. And it was about a 20, 25 minute ride home. And we just started talking about all kinds of other stuff, you know, me stuff, her stuff. And the conversation started feeling more balanced. Now to put it in perspective for you, the concert was only like an hour and a half. We were literally out of there and home and back at her place by eight o'clock at night. We proceeded to sit there on that couch and chat until 1.30 in the morning. (laughs) Okay. We, and I'm thinking she is really, really, really going for the whole discovery thing with this. This is something that definitely looks like it's going to go somewhere. And we talked more about the spirituality stuff and I was honest about my experiences and the whys and wherefores of what kind of brought me to this place of non-belief. And uh, I thought that we were having a good talk. I thought that it was going well. 
it's important that you understand these things about me. It's important that I understand these things about you because if this is going to go anywhere and we're going to have any semblance of a relationship, then there has to be a meeting of the minds on this stuff. Right. And, you know, there are plenty of people out there who go through relationships that are decades long and they have different views on spirituality and religion and they make it work. So this was the other thing that was going through my head when I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to swipe right or respond to her. So that's running through my head. It's like, you know, this, there's no reason why this can't work. And at the end of the night, everything was great. Everything was so great. When I left, it was like 1.30 in the morning and I'm driving home on this high and I'm just like letting the emotions, you know, I'm not falling for this person after one date, but let's just say that I was allowing the emotions to trip a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Stumble a little bit over this person, not fall, but just kind of loosen up the reins a little. Well, that was Saturday. Sunday rolls around and I literally hear from her once, which is not, it's not typical, but I chalked it up to, okay, well, you know what? She usually goes to bed at 10 o'clock at night and you were there until 1.30 in the morning. You know, she's probably sleeping, napping, whatever. Monday rolls around and I text her and I'm already at work. You know, it was a busy morning and I just kind of forgotten to say my good morning. So I text her and before I know it, I've got this very long drawn out text that basically indicates that the feelings, the way that she put it, just didn't carry over to Sunday. And it had everything to do with a difference of opinion on this one thing. And I'm certain that I know what most of it was. I mean, she had read my profile. She, she knew what I believed. When she swiped right, she knew. That was the part that hurt the most. But I honestly believe that after she met me and she saw just what kind of a foundation I had in my non-belief, it probably scared her. She probably yeah. started thinking that eventually if I hang out with this guy too much, I'm going to start thinking like him. And she could not bear the idea of letting go of this notion of this dead child of hers still interacting with her. And she decided to sacrifice what could have been a very good relationship with a living, breathing human who is there right now that you can see, you can touch, you can hear, and it's not coming from your imagination. She decided that that had less value than this notion of her son still being with her. Yeah. You see, religion and spirituality take a lot of things away from us. And the worst of it is when these things deprive you of your happiness because it wasn't yeah. just it, it wasn't just a psychological thing with her. It was a whole spiritual thing. And because I had abandoned spirituality, it was going to make it impossible. All the discovery that went on the night before just led her to, and, and this is this is my mind, not hers. She didn't say this outright, but I kind of read it between the lines. In her mind, it was just, it was going to be too difficult to maintain the beliefs in the face of so much fucking logic. Yeah. And that was where I think it all fell apart. Yeah. So that was story number one. Now, that kind of touched me in, in the quote-unquote heart, and it did. It was actually a tougher thing than, than some of the others, some of the other people I've been involved with. Yeah. This actually hurt more because I saw real serious potential with it and once again let my emotions have a little bit too much of the floor a little bit too early on. So, you know, another lesson learned. There's that. The next one, well, let's just say that this situation could have absolutely 
toppled my business because it, yeah. it touched my business directly. A couple months ago, I hired a new instructor and things were going well. Things were okay in terms of how this person was doing her job. She took a little bit longer to learn it than average. You know, I spent some extra time with her and made sure that she understood how we did things. And I didn't hear boo for like a month. And then all of a sudden, I don't even know if I told people this when it happened, but I wound up getting COVID over 4th of July weekend. We both wound yeah. up with COVID over 4th of July weekend. I think that my instructor and I both got it at work and we both got it from the same person. I'm reasonably certain of where each of us picked it up. I'm pretty right. sure I know. What happened next was uh, was kind of interesting. For starters, she was very paranoid about coming back to work. She had gone to urgent care and was told by a medical tech that she had to quarantine for 14 days. She was uh, she was vaccinated. She didn't have to quarantine for 14 days. On the high end of things, you'd probably have to quarantine for five. I kind of steered clear of students for about five days. I was back at work after like three and staying away from people. Right. But I kind of steered clear of students for a while when until I knew that I felt perfectly normal again. I was not getting in the car. But she milked it for two weeks because someone at urgent care managed to scare her into staying away from work for two weeks. And when she came back... Let's just say things were a little different. Now, COVID can do a lot to your brain. There are yeah. all kinds of things that COVID can do to mess with your brain. But I had no idea for a little while there what was going on in one of my instruction vehicles. But apparently this person had got it into her head that her dead mother was communicating with her. And guiding her through certain stressful situations. There was one other stressful situation in her life that happened right after the whole thing with COVID. And those things together, I think, were the catalyst for all of this stuff. And I found out that she was conveying this stuff to students in the car that she was talking about some craziness about how God had told her that her and her mother were responsible for saving the world. Yeah. It was, it was just, it was so fucking out there. And it's like, it almost sounded like the plot of a movie. Yeah. It's like, if, if this person had any writing skills, I would have told her to write a fucking screenplay. Okay. It was that out there. It was that over the top. And without going into major detail here, after about a week of this, I finally get a phone call from a parent. And what I was hearing was just, I, I couldn't even believe my ears that this was something that was going on in one of my cars. And it's like, you know, people embellish, they inflate, they make mountains out of molehills. Let's actually see what all of this is about and whether or not it's as bad as it sounds. Well, the instructor came back at the end of her shift and we went out back for a little nicotine therapy, you know, mm -hmm. because I found this, this to be true with, with two of my instructors so far. I'm not a quote unquote habitual smoker, but it does have a tendency to make things feel a little bit more comfortable when you're just out there smoking a butt. Right. And so we were out there I just, I asked her, I'm, I was trying to lead her into the conversation without saying that I had had interactions with anybody at that point. I asked her, you know, how things were going, you know, things seem a little bit different since you got back. And then she started conveying all this shit to me, mm. all of the same stuff. And I'm like, 
fuck me, it's true. She's literally talking about these things in the car with 16-year-olds. And it actually escalated into other things that were offshoots of all of this, that her brain was trying so hard to keep up with or try to get respite from. Yeah. And a lot of it was was coming out in the form of things that were just wicked and inappropriate in the car. So after all of that, we went inside and I said, okay, we have to have a talk because I got a phone call and what you're telling me corroborates what they were saying. We cannot have this. We can't have these kinds of conversations happening in the car. So we had a conversation about it. She was written up. And I just, I, I told her, this is the type of thing that you talk about in the car. You don't get into conversations about religion and spirituality. You don't talk to them about the personal issues that you're facing and anything about talking to dead people. We're not going to be talking about that in, in our instruction vehicles. And, uh, you know, I was given every assurance that it wouldn't happen again, but I was still very uneasy about right. putting her back in the car. I said, you know what? I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you not come in for the next few days. I want to see if any of this settles and if you're feeling any better at the beginning of the week, and then we'll talk about you getting back in the car. Well, in the interim, she wound up sending me a bunch of texts. And in some of these texts, she claimed to be speaking as her mother. Mm. In some of these texts, she claimed to be speaking as God. And I'm like, okay, I think we're done here. I think we're yeah. definitely done here. And it was it was a complete 180 turnaround because, you know, she did take a little longer to learn the job than average. But I think that at least in the beginning, and I've kind of had certain evidences come out in the last few days that corroborate that things were kind of business as usual until she got COVID. Right. And then all of this stuff started flooding into her head and she was convinced that her dead mother and God were speaking to her. Ooh. Okay. Did I mention she's evangelical? Ah. Okay. So she kept telling me, you know, I have to get through this week. We're going to resolve all of this in church on Sunday. I'm like, you're going to come back crazier on Monday than you are right now. If you're going to let church people try and deal with this. It's like, you don't need, and I told her this point blank. I told her this. It's like, you do not need to put this one in the hands of your pastor. You need to get on the phone to your insurance provider and tell them that you need help finding a mental health professional that can help you through this. That is what you need to do. Yeah. And, you know, she kind of blew it off at first, but when she ultimately lost her job, which she did as she's walking out, I said, you know what? I'm really, really sorry that things are working out the way that they are. Please, I am begging you, get some help and get good secular help. Do not look to your church because do you feel any better now? This was like Wednesday of the following week. It's like you told me this, that this was all going to be resolved in church on Sunday. How are you feeling on Wednesday? You need better help. And I urge you to get it. And that was the last time that I spoke to her until she texted me like a couple of days ago. And long story short, she actually is in the process of getting some help. It absolutely amazes me, but she is. And the, the nature of the texts that I got in the last couple of days, way more normal. Yeah. Way more normal than anything that I had seen a couple of weeks ago. So those were the things that were weighing on my mind when I kind of launched into that tirade a couple of weeks ago about, oh, we're going to do this next week. And we're going to talk about that. Well, these were the things that were running through my head. And the running thread with both of them is the way that 
spirituality and religion can manipulate the way that you think about things and how they can have an impact the way that we think about things and the running thread with both of them that oddly enough, I hadn't actually taken the time to assess while I was going through all this because my own emotions were in such a tizzy is that they both revolved around dead loved ones. And that was what got me thinking about this entire topic and trying to make it make sense in my own head, but then also deliver it to the audience in a way that would benefit them. So I told you those stories to get you to understand what that kind of thinking can do to you and the types of things that it can deprive you of. It can deprive you of healthy relationships. It can deprive you of your sense of reality. And it can deprive you of things like your job, yeah. okay? If you let it go unchecked, if you let your grief go unchecked, there is a lot that these things can ultimately take away from you. And when you add religion and spirituality into the mix, well, guess what? You've just doubled and quadrupled the problems that you have because now you have this foundation of belief where, especially when it comes to Christianity, you have this foundation of belief that eventually, at least, you're going to see these people again. Yeah. And sometimes your brain just can't wait that long. Mm-hmm. And regardless of what anyone wants to tell you about what doctrinally is supposed to be happening with that person right now, if your brain wants them to be there, they're going to be there. Yeah. So when you add that element of religion or spirituality to it, it can actually make it exponentially more toxic. And it can deny you things that you really shouldn't have to live without. And it can put you in mental places where you should never have to go. Right. So there's the cautionary tale for the week about this particular subject. Through the course of my research, I also discovered that a lot of mental health professionals agree that religion can be a buffer when it comes to the effects of grief. And my question there is, yeah, but at what cost? What is the real benefit of using one delusion to counteract another? You know, it doesn't make any sense to me. They also say that bereavement hallucinations can be beneficial to the grief process. Well, yes, if you move things along, but if it keeps you stuck, I'm sorry, but what good is it? Right. One of the things that ran through my head after I got the Monday text was the part in uh, the first Harry Potter book about the mirror of Erised. Yeah. We're going to forget for a minute that these words were written by a hopeless transphobe and just deal with the truth of it for just a second. And there's that line after Harry has spent like multiple nights sitting in front of this mirror that shows, as it says along the border of the mirror, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. Right. Well, that's kind of what your brain is doing when it starts concocting these um, bereavement hallucinations. And Harry, when he sat in front of the mirror, he could see his parents, his dead parents, who were um, basically cheering him on and showing how proud they were of him. And this was the desire of his heart. He wanted to have that kind of interaction with them. So after a bunch of nights of just vegging out in front of this mirror, Professor Dumbledore happens upon him and says, back again, Harry. He tells Harry, you know, that there are people have, who have actually gone mad in front of this mirror. But the pivotal line here is where he tells Harry, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. And the message here is you can let this drive you crazy or you can get on with your life 
and understand that this is not truth, that this is nothing but an illusion. And you have to be okay with that. You can't dwell on it because if you do, it can drive you crazy. And he goes so far as to move the mirror to another location so that Harry can't find it anymore. Wouldn't it be great if we could just take those parts of our brain that keep us stuck in these places and just move them someplace else so that we don't have to interact with them anymore? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's just not that simple when it comes to this sort of thing. But when it became apparent to me that that relationship wasn't going to go anywhere and because of this, that was the very first thing that I thought of. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. You have a live person here who cares about you, who is interested in seeing something happen here, but you're going to cling to this notion that someone who is deceased is still quote unquote with you. And you're going to find more comfort in that. No, all that is, is a reflection in the mirror of our said sweetheart. And that's all that it will ever be. And getting past that is necessary. I don't think I ever even told her about the podcast. We never got that far. No. So I don't think there's any way that she's ever going to hear this. But, you know, in the most basic of terms and to anyone who has ears to hear, don't fall into that trap. And if you're stuck in a place like this, then it's important to figure out a way out. Yeah. It's very important. I will admit that I was disappointed to see so many positive perspectives on all of this. And there were a lot in the research that I did, there were a lot of positive things that a lot of people said about it. But here's the thing. In my mind, delusion is never a good thing. Now that said, I can see where a lot of these people are coming from too. I would just have liked to see a bit more commentary about how to get past bereavement hallucinations and a little less on the side of enabling in a lot of these articles. I think that would have been much better. Anyone going through this would likely look at an article like the one in Psychology Today and actually find affirmation in it. That in and of itself can get a person stuck. The experts say that this is fine and might even be real. And the person turns around and starts thinking things like, I have proofs just like those people in the article. Or, you know, this person is validating my feelings. I'm going to take these words and I'm going to read them as this. Yeah. So I think that it can actually be a little bit more destructive than helpful when you take that kind of a neutral stance on things. In a situation like this, I think it's especially true. And this is why we, as a podcast, look at both sides. In my own experience, visions and dreams didn't really provide me with much comfort, not even the one about my grandmother, really. It was always stuck in my mind that those people were gone. There was a part of me that could never really get behind the whole we live forever thing. Wicca gave me a much more comforting construct of these interactions. It also described far better iterations of heaven than any Christian version had to offer. So it became more of a pleasurable thing for me to think about being in heaven and, and being reunited with the people that were important to me that had passed. And I would even get chills whenever I would read the part of the Charge of the Goddess about I give freedom and peace and reunion with those gone before. And I latched onto that pretty heavily for a while. I did. But the more you distance yourself from the influences that keep your thoughts centered on those things, the more your thoughts start distancing themselves from those concepts. I think the person in story number one ultimately decided that she didn't want to pursue the relationship because she knew that the more she hung around with someone who didn't believe those things, the less she would have over time. She wasn't ready to let go, so she chose to perpetuate feelings of the presence of someone who wasn't there 
over the real tangible comforts that a relationship with a real living, breathing person bring with it. In the latter example, being confronted with the mortality of her partner, that was the other stressful bit that I kind of mentioned but glossed over. Her partner was taken to the hospital with chest pains Mm. and they were afraid that he was having a heart attack. So being confronted with the mortality of her partner, that triggered the need to feel close to her mother who had already passed. The second story is, in fact, moving toward a happy ending. The first, I have no idea. I'd like to think that eventually she figures out a way to move on, but it isn't likely without some kind of outside influence leading her in that direction, and clearly she's nowhere near ready for that. Sad but true. If you're experiencing things that you believe to be the presence of someone who's passed, let me leave you with these key takeaways. Number one, your brain is creating a buffer for your grief with all of these things that you're perceiving. That's all it is, is your brain protecting you from the worst of the feels. Next, imagination is a powerful thing. Yeah. And it can convince us that things are happening that aren't happening. It can provide us with all kinds of sensory data that exists nowhere except inside our own brains. But because we already have experience of these things, guess what? Our brains remember a lot more than we give them credit for. And our brains can pull things out at a point of need. And you think that you can hear something or smell something or feel something because it's already familiar. You've already experienced it. And your brain is now making these connections again as a defense mechanism to keep you from going crazy. Next, assessing the proofs that you claim to have is mandatory. In both of those stories, there were instances where I was presented with quote-unquote proofs that could be easily explained away as coincidental or by other very, very simple, practical, and common means. I didn't confront either of them on it, but it was very easy to see where this stuff was coming from. And one of the examples that I was given by by this person that I was quote-unquote dating for very, very briefly was that she had been given some kind of go-ahead or I don't even know if I want to say go-ahead. She was given encouragement by another person that she knew who had died, and she was taking that as you know this was a good thing the you know meeting up with me was a good thing because she heard a song on the radio that was a favorite of one of her best friends so to that end all i can say is that a billboard top 100 song playing on a classic rock station is only proof of the popularity of the song not that anyone is trying to communicate anything to you next i'm going to ask you a question what are you doing to get past your grief Are you doing anything to get past it? Or have you become too comfortable with where you are that you have become stuck? Because if that's the case, then you might need some help getting past this point. Of course, you need to want to get past that point first, but it might take some help once you get there. And let's just see if we can pull a little bit of honesty out of this situation. Are you purposely keeping yourself at one of the stages of grief because that's where you feel that person most strongly? Because that's another thing that we do. And usually it's at the denial or bargaining end of the equation. But again, it can show up at any of the grief stages. So are you knowingly keeping yourself in a certain headspace because that's where you believe this other person exists? 
because that's another thing that can keep you stuck literally for the rest of your life. So try to remember that the conversations you think you're having with a deceased loved one all pull from memories of real interactions. If you think about it, I'm sure you can even trace back the things that happen in those moments to things that actually happened when the person was alive. I dare you to test this one out. Everything you think about that person is based on the experience of having them in your life. So the next time you feel like somebody is communicating something with you, ask yourself, where have I heard this before? Has this person had this conversation with me before? Is it the type of thing that they would be prone to say or do already? Because if the answer is yes, that is your brain putting together a scenario based on what you know and understand about that person. And that is all it is. Also keep in mind that moving past grief to a place of acceptance is difficult. It takes a level of courage that many don't possess on their own. If necessary, start by forgetting about finding the courage to let go and instead exercise enough courage to reach out to a licensed mental health professional for help. Remember, it's not about taking your pain away. It's about learning how to manage it and compartmentalize it so that you can have healthy memories of the person or people you've lost. Remembering is very healthy. Insisting that they're somehow still here just isn't. Lastly, if you've experienced any of this and have listened this far, it means something very significant. It means that you're open to the notion that there are explanations for the experiences you've had and you're interested in exploring the truth. This is a very good thing and good for you for having enough of an open mind to at least consider the truth of your situation. It shows that you're smart enough to realize that there's a possibility that these things aren't real. And no, you're not stupid if you have bereavement hallucinations. You're hurt if you have them. You're lonely if you have them. You might be angry or depressed if you have them. It has nothing to do with a lack of intellect, but you have to be willing to let your intellect in on the conversation. That's vital. This is what we hope to have facilitated in this conversation. It's important to not let your emotions run the entire show. And if you have until now, I challenge you to let reason have the floor and approach the information we've shared with you tonight with the desire to understand what's really going on. Don't settle for things that exist only in your imagination. That's a recipe for missing out on things that are real and can bring you real comfort and happiness. Don't dwell on dreams to the point where you forget to live. It's good advice. If we've made you think about all of this a little more, also think about getting help in managing your grief if you haven't already. And again, not from your pastor or your best friend, from a qualified mental health professional who can help you see the pros and cons and guide you into a place of peace with all of this. If you've been stuck for a while, your mind needs a break. Take steps to keep your mind well. I know it's scary, but unfortunately, the truth isn't always comforting, at least not at the beginning. And that's just the reality of it. Like we said way back in episode one, it's important to reach a place where we're willing to seek the truth wherever it leads, even if it puts us out of our comfort zone once in a while. There's still more peace to be found in uncomfortable truths than there will ever be in comforting lies. Stay open to the possibility of letting go. It's just one more step you can take toward getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed 
enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.